0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 47. Last week, I covered the city of Laish, which after it was defeated by the Danites, changed its name to Dan, a name that continues through today. I also reviewed the little known about Beth Rehab. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week... I'm picking up with another place mentioned in the migration story. And with that, let's get started. The next place is Mahane Dan, named twice in Judges, as where the tribe of Dan lived, as their allotted territory was slowly squeezed smaller by the neighboring Philistines. In Hebrew, Mahane translates as the camp of, so the name is nothing more than a phrase telling us this is where they encamped. The exact place has been lost, though it's commonly thought to be between Zora and Eshtail. It was here that Samson began to stir, along with being the place where the 600 warriors stopped before proceeding to Laish, which implies something about its history. This wasn't a temporary encampment. It was around while Samson did all his mischief, and then lasted into the story of Micah and Dan's migration. Maybe only a year, or a few, but certainly longer than a short camping trip. Some propose that the two events contradict each other, or that they aren't referring to the same place. Perhaps. But if Zora is the same place as Shura, and Eshtail the same as Esha, which is what most scholars think, then the place they encamped is likely the same too. Just think of all that as the transitive property of mathematics meets textual analysis. Logical reasoning all the same. Unfortunately, no mention of Mahane Dan can be found in the outside record, possibly indicating it was only inhabited for a short period, or it wasn't remarkably large. Given the context of Judges, that the Danites congregated there while their territories shrank, and just before migrating northward, I'm siding with the short-lived occupation hypothesis, and that's the encampment/place of Mahane Dan. Moving along, next up is the man Gershom, who merited a mention in Judges as the father of Jonathan, who would become priest to the Danites after their relocation from southern to northern Israel. Though note the use of the word father here isn't exactly literal. More accurately, he could be described as Jonathan's forefather. More on that different instance of this in a minute. According to the text, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the Danites until the time the land went into captivity. Though, a footnote does explain that another translation would be that Gershom was the son of Manasseh. And keep in mind, Moses was said to be the son of Levi, so Manasseh would have been a completely different tribe. Most researchers, though, go with the son of Moses lineage, as it aligns with a couple passages in Exodus, where a son of Moses is named Gershom, usually described as Moses' oldest son. Moses and his wife Zipporah named him such, which translates to a stranger there or sojourner. Both thought to reference Moses living in exile from the Egyptians while in Midian. The name Gershom is thought to be the same as Gershon, with an N, identified in First Chronicles as the ancestor of one of the principal Levite families. And given that Moses was a Levite, that helps to triangulate. This mention in Chronicles identifies Shabol as a son of Gershom. And this, too, likely means great-something-grandson, since Shabba was a contemporary of King David, hundreds of years after Moses and family, and even at least a hundred years after Jonathan. A similar use of the phrase, son of, can be seen twice in the first verse of the Gospel of Matthew, which reads, An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Hebrew, the word for son can also mean descendant. Backing up to when he was born, and just after, Gershom, his brother Eliezer, and their mother would accompany Moses when he returned to Egypt. It was during this trip that one of the most interesting passages in the Bible occurs, paraphrased from the text. On the way, at a place where they spent the night, The Lord met him and tried to kill him, but Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, touched his feet with it, and said, Truly, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So, God left them alone. Embedded in this, there is a somewhat academic debate about whose feet were touched by the blood and who God tried to kill, Moses or his son Gershom a debate revolving around the ambiguity of the pronoun, him. After this, they continued to Egypt. At some point, though, Moses' family would return to Midian, leaving Moses and Aaron to deal with Pharaoh. The timing of when this happened is not mentioned in the text, but we do know it happened, given the later Exodus narrative when Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought Moses' sons and wife back to Moses when he and the other Israelites were in the wilderness and at what was described as the mountain of God, meaning Mount Sinai. Embedded in the story of Gershom and his grandson-something son, Jonathan, is a historical debate. Who exactly was allowed to be a Levite priest? On the one side are strict readers who think it's only the descendants of the first high priest Aaron. On the other side are those who think it could be any man from the tribe of Levi. And this debate comes to a head with Jonathan. He wasn't Aaron's grand son, but instead Moses' making him a Levite, but only a nephew of Aaron. If you stick with the progeny of Aaron then Jonathan being a priest was against what Moses had taught. Yet another potential historical swipe against the Danites, some even referring to the Jonathanic priesthood as being illegal. There's a bunch more to this debate, even involving theories about different writers of the Old Testament text. And instead of doing a deep dive and potentially boring you to sleep, I'll do my best to summarize. One source, known as the Priestly Code, is thought to have been written by a Levite priest, explaining the name. This source, as expected, takes a strict view on who could have become a priest and excludes Jonathan, among many others. Another source, known as the Deuteronomist, allows a slightly looser interpretation. Anyone from Levi could be a priest, and that would allow for Jonathan. This source posits that limiting priesthood to direct descendants of Aaron was a later invention of those who could prove their lineage, meaning the Aaronite priest, in an attempt to consolidate their power. Both sides, trying to back up their claims, dive deep into the text to the point of pedantic interpretations of ancient Hebrew. I'll spare you of that. One thing to note before moving along, there were later prophets, who seemed to serve the role of a somewhat priest, who were not descended from Aaron, or in some cases even Moses, or even Levi for that matter. These included Samuel, which the first book bearing his name names him as an Ephraimite in its first chapter. Though it's worth noting that First Chronicles names Samuel as a Levite. There's also the case of Elijah, who was said to be a Tishbite, likely meaning he hailed from Gilead, probably making him from the tribe of Manasseh, though the text doesn't name any tribe. A few last things about Gershom before moving along. First, there's no record of him outside of the Old Testament. No surprise there. Finally, for an unnamed reason, Moses didn't pass the torch to his oldest son, but instead to Joshua. Some assume this is due to his son's stubbornness, or potentially something else, but whatever the reason, it didn't happen. This passing of everything to the firstborn is known as primogeniture, with its first mention in the text occurring with Esau, who was said to have inherited a birthright from his father Isaac. Of course, his slightly younger brother Jacob tricked him out of it. According to the law of Moses, the firstborn may be either the firstborn of his father, who is entitled to receive a double portion of his father's inheritance when compared to the other sons. It could also be the firstborn of his mother, something that would come into play when a father had multiple wives. In that case, The dad is not allowed to leave more to the firstborn son of his favorite wife. Circling back to Moses and his heir apparent Joshua, an easy interpretation is that leading the people wasn't Moses' choice. It wasn't like property. It was bigger than that. Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy without naming an heir. And the book of Joshua begins with God telling Joshua, he's the new leader of the Israelites. Moving along and back to Judges. All of this gets me to the end of Judges 18. Chapter 19 begins with a story subheaded as the Levite's concubine. The story itself is rather lengthy, too long for the time I have remaining in this episode, so I'll save it for next week. One thing that's mentioned in the next part of the text is the place Mizpah which I'll get to that place in the very near future, meaning in the next couple of episodes. The place is named after the concept of Mizpah, and now is as good of a time as any to cover that. The word Mizpah itself is Hebrew for Watchtower. It was first mentioned in Genesis, as part of the story of Jacob and Laban, where they built a pile of stones to mark their agreement with God as their witness. In order to better understand the concept, I need to back up a bit to that story in Genesis. Jacob had secretly fled from the house of Laban, who was both his father-in-law and his uncle. Jacob left in the middle of the night, taking with him flocks of animals, all his other assets, along with his wives and all their children, meaning he took Laban's daughters and grandchildren among others. He was leaving for good, never intending to return. When Laban awoke, presumably the next morning, he discovered much of his family missing and set out after the lot, eventually catching up. When he does, Laban and Jacob come to an agreement formalizing the separation of the family. In this, Laban implies that his daughters had voluntarily left, saying, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do today about these daughters of mine, or about their children, whom they have borne? Also implied in here is that Jacob had taken livestock that was not his. Laban agreed to let Jacob go in peace, but exacted a promise from Jacob to never maltreat his daughters or take on additional wives. The mistreatment part surprised me until I went back and reread the text. His exact words were The Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from each other. If you ill treat my daughters, or if you take wives in addition to my daughters, though no one else is with us, remember that God is witness between you and me. Though, do note, Jacob never said he abused his wives and what he had done in the past is also not told in the text. All of this, though, feels a bit like rationalization. Jacob did love one wife more than the others, and yes, there was another wife, who wasn't Laban's daughter, but was instead his daughter's servant. The whole place and time is exceedingly foreign. Anyway, I'm way off topic and need to get back to the concept of Mizpah. Jacob and Laban then arranged a pile of stones, a figurative watchtower, which became known as a Mizpah, in this case memorializing their collective promise to each other. Since no other person was present for this, they both considered the stones to be a symbol of God watching over them, making sure they adhered to their word, God as their witness. Both also agreed that they would consider the Mizpah, the actual stacked stone, to be a border between their respective territories, and that they would not pass the watchtower to visit one another to do harm. Since that time, a Mizpah has come to imply an emotional bond between people who are separated, perhaps physically or even by death. Mizpah jewelry is often made in the form of a coin-shaped pendant cut in two with a zigzag line bearing the words, The Lord watched between me and thee, when we are absent from each other. When worn, this is used to symbolize the Mizpah bond. Also related, the word Mizpah is often used as the name for a cemetery. It can sometimes be found on headstones and other memorials. Outside of the Bible, you'll more frequently run into the word Karen. These are man-made rock piles or stacks built for a specific purpose, usually as a marker or as a burial mound. The word Karen is Scottish Gaelic, and the piles can be found all over the globe, especially for an old-school land navigation marker, which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up in Judges 19 with the tale of a Levite. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes, or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe, so get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.